spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's our anniversary, so hey, let's head to London. It's episode 357 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, I don't know if you've been counting, but... Seven years for the Down and Nerdy podcast now, almost to the day, actually, that the first episode was recorded. Not released, but recorded. And it's been an amazing seven years. If you've been with us from the beginning, I appreciate you more than you could possibly know. Thank you so much for your support of the show over the years. Or maybe if this is your first episode, hey, you're in for a great ride. Here's to another seven years. And this week we're celebrating... By talking about the return of Pennyworth, actually, this Sunday to Epic. Simon Manyonda going to be joining me this week to talk about Lucius Fox joining the cast of Pennyworth. Wait till you get to hear what he has to say. So many reviews to do this week, too. Not just with comics, but I'm going to be talking about the Hulu movie Boss Level. You know I'm going to be talking about the Flash Season 7 premiere and some nerd news. But up next, you know this is how we were going to start things, right? Let's recap the series finale of WandaVision from Disney Plus and Marvel Studios up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Easily the most talked about show of the last couple of months. WandaVision's finale has finally happened. And hey, let's talk about it. And I promise you this, no Spoilers. I know the episode just dropped. Maybe you haven't had a chance to watch it yet. If you're listening to this show after Friday, you've probably seen it. But remember, these shows go up on Friday, same day as the episode. So I am absolutely 100% not spoiling it for anybody who's listening to the podcast early. So this probably won't be a terribly long review because I can't really talk about specific details. So I'll just give you my overall impressions of the episode. I will say that... Just as a whole, this has been one of the most cinematic TV series probably ever because this felt like a long-form movie. It really, really did, and that's a credit to Marvel Studios and just the way that they put this together, their first TV series. And, and I don't, you know, you want to talk about other Marvel series and the fact that they're a Marvel Studios series. Let's just be honest here. The first Marvel Studios series certainly lived up to what they've done in the movies so far, and then some, as far as I'm concerned. And this one was a gamble. This show was very different from the beginning, but ended up feeling like a true Marvel Studios movie in the end, quite frankly. And maybe if that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's a matter of opinion. I think the way that they rounded this thing out was a very good thing. And I will say this. There is a ton of action in this final episode of WandaVision. The actual title of the episode, by the way, is the series finale. That doesn't mean this is the series finale. I think it probably is, but that's the title of the episode. And there is a ton of action. And while, again, I'm not going to get into specifics, there are def- there's definitely a showdown that you will expect. You will get that, and you will get a lot of it. There's also another showdown that you might not be expecting, that's also very, very good. And the tool that is used to end that battle 
is a very unconventional and interesting one, but suits the character so, so well. When you get there, you'll probably understand what I'm talking about. This is not how fights usually end. Let's just put it that way. Or And, and who is left after the end of this episode, too, is also a very interesting question. Like, who is still around and who isn't? Because those answers aren't exactly clear for a couple of characters. Now, there's, they're absolutely clear for some characters, but not so much for others. So what the way that this thing goes is you, you kind of understand that this was the only way that it could end, really. Okay, I, I guess this is the way I, I can put it without spoiling it. Like, if you were expecting... Well, there, there, there's only one way that this really ends. You, you're probably going to be right in, in, in thinking that. That much I can tell you without, without spoiling anything. Now, I'm not going to tell you if anybody shows up in the episode. I'm not going to tell you that, that, we've, that we learn answers about who certain characters' identities are. Or maybe, maybe we do, maybe we don't. But I will say this, is that... I know the director said something about fans possibly being disappointed with this finale. And you have to understand that it's all a matter of what, what are you watching this show for? Are you watching this show to find out if something else is going to be as a, a result of this show? Or are you watching the show to enjoy the show? Because I think that we get sucked into that, right? And part of that is a Marvel thing, right? We sort of expect certain big shocking surprises, everywhere we turn at certain times, right? When at the same time, sometimes you just have to enjoy something for what it is. And WandaVision is one of those things that you should be enjoying for what it is. You don't need to think about what the next big thing might be. Why don't you just enjoy the big thing that you're watching and experiencing right now? This is not a series that just comes around all the time. It had a really good layered story it was a ta- it was very much a Wanda Maximoff story, too. By the way, you wanted a story surrounding the Scarlet Witch, you got it, and and now you're 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 kind of focused on the thing that's over here that might be happening at the end of the episode or at the end of the series. I I don't understand that. Like you 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 asked for something, they give it to you, and now you're wondering what should, what what else you should get because of it. I I. I don't get that. I, I'm happy with the story that they told. And, and that doesn't mean that somebody doesn't show up or does show up. I'm just saying that I'm happy with the story that they told and the end result that we got. And if you if you really look at the totality of this series, it is a sad, tragic tale for Wanda Maximoff. It really, really is the sadness that is kind of always under the surface of this series when it comes to Wanda is so palpable to me. And if you really look at the big picture of what she's doing and what she's done, how just terribly gut-wrenching is that, right? And she tried to make that better in the in the way that she thought she could. And then you kind of see in this, in the penultimate episode, in last week's episode, she realizes that you know, maybe she didn't go about this the right way sort of thing, right? So it, it's just the way that this whole thing this whole thing ends 
is just really sad. Although one tease I can give you is that Wanda would be a hell of a realtor. I'm just going to tell you that right now. You'll understand that once you see the, the rest of the episode. But I mean, hey, I would trust her to pick out my, my house any day. Let's just put it that way. You, you also get to you get a full display of how powerful she really is in this episode, too. I know that there's been a lot of chatter about who the most powerful Avenger is, and we're not at all going to get into that discussion right now. But you get to see how, how powerful she is, and it is epic. I will tell you that right now. We also get some a lot of great Jimmy Woo moments. So if you're a big Jimmy Woo fan, I think there's the there's a future for that guy in the rest of the MCU. I don't know what it's going to be, but yeah, he's definitely got a future beyond WandaVision, I think. Monica Rambeau's another one that's got a future beyond this series. No doubt about that. And I will say this too, there is a mid-credit scene and an end-credit scene. So you have two scenes in this episode so do not go after that first mid-credit scene because there's more coming at the end of the credits and it is very very important does it set up dr strange too does it start set up dr strange in the multiverse of madness i, I i'm not going to tell you that but i will say that there's something that we find out at the end of this end credit scene that could really drive the story going forward. That's all I'm going to say about that. And really, with that, I, I since I can't get into too much detail, I'm just going to leave it at that. So I will tell you this if you have not watched the episode yet. Enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy WandaVision and not the possibility of what WandaVision could bring in. To the MCU and I think that you'll find that this show if it stood on its own would be a very very memorable and classic first outing for Marvel Studios in the TV realm that's going to do it for my spoiler free review of the WandaVision finale up next going to be talking about Pennyworth Simon Mignanda joins me next to talk about Lucius Fox's big debut on the Down and Nerdy podcast Hey, this is Drew Powell from Gotham. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. After taking a little bit of a break, Pennyworth is back on March the 7th on Epics. That's a Sunday. And this is the guy that was the teaser that we got at the end of that first part of season two. Lucius Fox is coming to London and it's played by this guy right here. It's Simon Manyanda. Simon, what's up? What's up, man? How you doing, James? Doing good, man. Doing good. I mean, we've certainly seen Lucius on screen before, but this will be the first time we're seeing like a younger Lucius. So you, do you kind of feel like that allows you to put more of your own stamp on the character? I do. I really do. I don't think it's too much to say that, you know, potentially this is going to be the longest or one of the longest live action portrayals of Lucius Fox. You know, maybe Chris Chalk maybe could, you know, contest that from um, Gotham. But yeah, certainly, you know, I, I've got the privilege of building the foundation of Lucius Fox, you know? Most definitely. And one thing we didn't didn't waste any time seeing those gadgets, those high tech gadgets no. with Lucius, which was very cool. We saw that at the end of at the end of the first part of season two as well. So given the time period, how much fun was it to work with this stuff, especially since, you know, we live in such a wireless world now and stuff? Mm. Oh, do you know what it was great because it's all analog. So you're dealing with wires, you're dealing with on-off switches, you know, you're dealing with, you know, with 
but with tech that can you know really be faulty in a really sort of hands-on way you know like you can't call up a, a helpline like it's right there and and it's immediate and it's really interesting because in episode five there is a, a scene where uh, Lucius has a telecommunication device in a glasses case and I was at home the week before trying to set up some music equipment and I like to listen to music on vinyl you know like I'm an analog a listener nice. and and I found that I was trying to set something up and, it, and I couldn't make it work I just you know I kept trying to press the on switch and it wouldn't happen and I thought ah this is how I'm going to play the scene in ep5 when he is trying to uh, escape using this device because I felt like you know a lot of the time when we see tech dudes like guys that are good with gadgets they're just super slick right like there's just no mistakes made you know and for me it's really important that my Lucius Fox is not the same Lucius Fox that Morgan Freeman played, you know, or he's not the Lucius Fox that we know at 60 or 70 years old. He has got a brilliant mind, you know, he's, you or I couldn't make the gadgets that he makes, but it doesn't mean that those gadgets are perfect. And it doesn't mean that he's not still making mistakes and, and has an emotional uh, relationship with these gadgets, you know, that when they work or when they don't work you know that this really has a sort of toll on him and I can speak more on that later but it's certainly a lot of fun for sure no doubt about it now Lucius as we've seen over the over the years he's pretty cool under pressure but being inside the Raven Union has has him a bit rattled and I mean justifiably so so just how tense are things for him as we come back here on March 7th they're very tense for him because his hands are dirty you know he's a CIA plant uh, he didn't know in entirely what he was helping to create when he saw the, the devastation because you know he witnesses them test storm clouds he can't believe what he's seen he, he can't believe what he's done so he demands to to escape and then when he you know like and then when he confronts Thomas Wayne when he confronts the head of the CIA you know he doesn't get the response that he's looking for you know so he has to team up with Thomas Wayne and Martha Kay and Alfreds to take matters into his own hands, their own hands, as he threatened in episode six to try and clean himself. And I actually think that that, that pursuit of trying to scrub the spot off his hand, you know, sort of to misquote Lady Macbeth, that's his life journey, you know, like which is why he makes non-lethal weapons um, for Batman, you know, because he knows the power that he has in his mind and his ability to create, you know. That's such a good callback. I love that. That's such a good point. Now, actually, you brought up Thomas Wayne. How much can you tease for us about that relationship between the two of them in this early stage? What can I say? I mean, it, when they first meet, they don't get on, you know. They don't get on. But I think that Lucius has got a soft spot for romance. And when he sees the developments of his relationship with Martha he starts to sort of see the kind of human side of, of Thomas, you know, outside of the, the rich kid, the spoil, not quite nepotism, you know, but like whatever the word is when you get jobs for basically just being rich and posh or whatever, he's able to look past that. And I think that Ben and I, who plays Tom, you know, like we, we went to drama school together. So we've known each other for about 10 years. Like we weren't close, but we have known each other. He was a few years above me. And I think you'll find that little moments that that happen quite organically where you see Lucius Fox and Thomas Wayne just really in sync with each other, 
you know, and these weren't necessarily planned moments. They were just moments that maybe, you know, because Ben and I were riffing off each other in the green room before a scene or like, or like when we were rehearsing and then we just sort of found that we've literally at time found that we just really get in step with each other and we're looking forward to to developing that relationship, you know, because it's got to be developed, you know, it's got to be key. Absolutely. We're talking to Simon Manyandu, who plays Lucius Fox on Pennyworth from Epics, which will return on Sunday, March the 7th. Now, Simon, after getting an up-close and personal view of what Stormcloud can do, do you feel like that's kind of the moment where Lucius kind of realized, this is what I've been saying all along about the show, that Colonel Salt is way more dangerous than Lord Harwood. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I would. I would 100% agree with that because... I mean, Salt is so much more calculated than Lord Harwood. And as we can see, Lord is Lord Harwood is losing his mind. And um, Salt, is his mind is very much together. Absolutely. Now, you, you kind of talked about Alfred a little bit and, and teasing ahead to that. At this point, as of right now, they haven't met yet. But given the way things are right now, what do you think Lucius would actually think of Alfred? I think Lucius is really confronted by... Alfred's violent nature. When we first meet Lucius, he's watching extreme violence and we see him trying to escape. And then when he's rescued, he's again confronted with more violence. I think that Lucius finds that really hard to reckon with. And it was interesting actually, because I watched, I think it was in the dark night. I was watching it when I was prepping and shooting Pennyworth. And there's an interesting look, uh, like an interesting scene where Lucius Fox Morgan's Lucius Fox and Michael Michael Caine's Lucius Fox sort of cross paths and they have this awkward exchange and I and I always thought what's that about and then I sort of thought maybe we're as in myself playing Lucius and Jack playing Lucius you know maybe we are you know developing what that awkward look is you know that Nolan planted in the Dark Knight or the Dark Knight Rises whatever it was. Isn't it cool how you can like pick out those little moments now? Like you go back, right? And you go, oh, well, maybe that's what that's about. Because I mean, that that's what we fans do, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like that's why it's so important for me to talk to fans. You know, why I take the time to, you know, if there's anybody there that, that is into Batman, you know, like who hits me up on Instagram or whatever, or, or, or if I just chat into people and I say, I'm doing this, you know, when they, you know, because a fan will talk about these characters like they're real people the way that I talk about Lucius like he's a real person because I'm playing him the way that Bruno talks about Lucius like he's a real person all the other characters because he's writing them you know and so because I'm an actor of course I go and find all of the material that I can and I like a fan yeah like you know read into these things because I want to yeah be able to uh, serve the fans you know it's it's uh, it's a real honor for me to be playing this part because there are so few uh, live action um, portrayals of this character and I'm playing him at a, at, at, uh, a really at a catalyst level and I really look to to hopefully inspire the comic books you know inspire cartoons inspire everything you know that go that that is to come now you know absolutely now and we've seen that Alfred's anxious to get to America obviously in this season but as comic book history has told us Simon Gotham's not exactly the best place in the world so do you feel like Gotham would be the safe haven that Alfred wants it to be? And do you think uh, Lucius is excited to get back as well? Well, it's going to be the safe haven. I mean, I think we know that it's not the safe haven because is Lucius looking to get back there? Well, 
it probably is because it's home, you know. I'm, I've not really thought about that, you know. I, I think um, first things first, you know, he, he needs to get out of the Raven headquarters and get Stormcloud back. Right, totally. And I'm just thinking, once Lucius finds out that Alfred wants to go to Gotham, Lucius could be the kind of guy that's like, you want to go to Gotham, really? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, he might be able to advise him, but maybe he also might think Gotham's the place for you, you know? That's a good point. Maybe, maybe, maybe Gotham needs him, too, just like, you know, eventually yeah, exactly. Gotham needs Batman sort of thing. I need a hero. There you go. Oh, I didn't think we'd get vocals today. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Simon, obviously things are crazy right now, but at some point, do you kind of hope that we get to learn more about Lucius and about his backstory, or do you feel like what we're doing right now is that that story? I think this is the story that we're telling, you know, like, I mean, I sort of really trust, like, Bruno to, to, to tell this story properly, and I think he is doing so. I, I think this here is, yeah, like, this is the foundation like I said, I think that Lucius' story is one of science and ethics, you know, which is a a quarter, let's say, of of um, of Batman's existence, you know. Um, I think that Pennyworth, yes, you know, like we're following the story of Pennyworth, but you know, you do have these pillars, as I say, of Thomas Wayne and Martha Kane and, and Lucius Fox, and and I think that the success of this show will be to be able to put all of those four pillars together and for us to understand all four parts of Batman and and to do that you've got to tell the story of of all four characters you know you've you've got to give them the right amount of weight I suppose no doubt about it now Simon before I let you go I I know that you really dived drove dove into this character of Lucius Fox and like you said we've seen him a couple times as you were preparing for the role or as you started to dive more into it what's something that surprised you to learn about Lucius Fox and might surprise fans as well. It surprised me to learn that Lucius Fox was part of the CIA, that he was a CIA recruit. That surprised me. It surprised me that he spent time in London, you know, because he's going to, we know now he's going to spend much more time in London. It surprised me. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't a surprise, but like, well, I mean, I suppose it might have been a surprise that he started off using analog technology. You know, it, like, it's so nice to see where his tech began. Absolutely. And we can watch that journey every Sunday night. March 7th is when Pennyworth comes back to Epics. Make sure you are watching that thing multiple times because you're going to want to see everything that this guy's got going on. It's Lucius Fox himself, Simon Mignanda. Thank you so much for joining Thank me you. this week. No problem. Thank you very much, man. I'm going to listen back to this podcast. I think I'm going to quite like that in the early podcast. So I don't know if you've noticed, but Pennyworth is actually a really darn good show. So if you're not watching it, you've certainly got a little bit of time to catch up before Season 2 returns on Sunday. That's March the 7th on Epics. If you don't have Epics, yeah, you should get it just for Pennyworth. That's how good it is. Thanks again to Simon Mignonda for joining me this week to talk about Pennyworth. Up next, we'll stay in the DC Universe to talk about The Flash Season 7 premiere. Plenty of spoilers, too. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. They've been waiting almost a year for this. It is the Season 7 premiere of The Flash, which is actually some of the remaining stuff from Season 6, but we'll call it the Season 7 premiere so we're going to go full spoilers on this review so just be aware of that if you haven't watched the episode yet and it's basically again a weakened barry allen who is losing his speed 
at a rapid pace. They're trying to get the artificial speed force going. Chester and the team are working on it. And actually, they've made a breakthrough in this episode. And we find out that HR, Nash Wells, and whatever Wells you want to call them, all the Wellses, Nash is the key to this whole thing. He's the organic receptor. He's what needs to push the multiverse particles into the artificial speed force to, to charge it and get it to work. So that's what he needs to do. But in true Nash fashion, although you can't really blame him, can you? I mean, the guy, you're basically asking the guy to kill himself, okay? And that's a, that's a tough ask. And he says, I'm not ready to die. And on one hand, you're thinking, what a dick. And on the other hand, you're thinking, uh, well, yeah, okay, I guess that's kind of reasonable. So there's a real push and pull with Nash Wells here. And we actually get to see quite a few of the Wells. And so of course, we do get HR. We get Sherlock or however you want to pronounce it. I'll get to that in a second, too, by the way, because that was hilarious. And, of course, Harrison Wells. And they all have their own input on exactly what should happen here. And, and there's a great scene with Barry and the Wellses towards the end of the episode. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because, basically, that that's one of the things that we're working on. And Eva's still running roughshod in the city. I mean, she could basically do whatever she wants. She knows that the Flash is weak. She's got Iris trapped. And there's really no one to stop her. And she, one of the big, just major things that she does in this episode is kills the original Mirror Master, Sam Scudder. Just wipes him out like he's nothing. This is a guy that gave the Flash fits. And she wipes him out like he's barely there. And it turns out there was a good reason for that. And the top, his girlfriend, was one of the reasons for that. And can I just say talking about the top when she gets caught that showdown between her and Cecile in the interrogation room not not just the first one but the second one really good stuff and talk about a side of Cecile Horton we have yet to see a little bit of a mean streak there which I kind of dug I'll be honest you know she's been kind of meek and mild you know very very helpful very nice but to see this side of her to kind of throw that fear into the top to get her to give up the information that she needed. That was that was some serious stuff. That was pretty crazy. So I'm I'm digging this new Cecile if this is going to be kind of a, a regular thing. I like that. And then you've got, you know, of course, Barry's doing everything he can. He's he's without Iris. He's trying to figure out a way to get her back, trying to get, figure out a way to get his speed back, trying to save the city, trying to stop Eva. Again, there's just a lot on Barry's plate right now. And when they try to get the multiverse particles out of Nash without killing Nash, they get thrown into Barry. And then Barry gets to be all of the Wellses. And I got to tell you, I, I, you can just see how much fun Grant Gustin was having with that, especially the scene where they're trying to pronounce Sherlock. I thought that was great. I thought it was hilarious. Maybe you've got to be a longtime fan of the show like I am to really appreciate that scene, I loved it. I was laughing hysterically. I thought it was so, so great that that Grant got a chance to do that with all of the Wells. And I'm sure that Tom Cavanaugh was having a little bit of fun with that as well. Maybe gave him a few pointers on, you know, how to be a Wells sort of thing, right? And then you've got Allegra and Nash's relationship that looked like it was better never. And then, you know, that starts falling apart again because she thinks that he's being selfish. But again, I go back to you're asking the guy to kill himself. Right. And that's that's a tough ask for anybody. But then, you know, Barry has that moment where, you know, the city needs to be saved. He's not ha fast enough to do it. So Nash decides to make 
that sacrifice. And yeah, I welled up. I'll be honest. I st- the tears were getting ready to flow when all the Wellses were saying goodbye to Barry. I was not ready for this. I was not prepared for this for a season premiere. And then I had to remind myself that this would have happened at the end of season six under normal circumstances. It was the, if there weren't a pandemic and they could have actually gotten to finish their sixth season. This would have been something that we would have all had to deal with a long time ago anyway. So this is more of like a finale revelation than a premiere revelation, but it's still a darn good one nevertheless. And a couple of other things happened in this episode too, by the way, that I thought were really good. Iris finally stands up and gets a little bit tough with Eva. And it looks like she's probably going to find her way out, or at least she's going to make it more difficult for Eva to keep them there. And then we find out basically Eva's not even Eva. Okay. So it turns out that her husband was right all along and that she basically died when the particle accelerator exploded or that accident happened. So Carver was right this whole time and she's just now realizing it. Now what Eva or not Eva does with this from here on out will be interesting. I I just think it's going to make her more evil. I think it's just going to her her plan is going to be to just destroy 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 now because if she's not real, if she's not the real Eva that she thought she was, then she was basically lied to. Now, granted, she bought into it, right? She she refused. Well, she wasn't lied to. She was told the truth, and she refused to believe it. I guess you could say. So again, I think this is just going to push her further and further off the deep end. And I actually think that works to the Flash's advantage because now that Barry seems to have his speed back, seems to ha- now that this artificial speed force is working, I think that you know with Eva off her game and now Barry back on his game, that just tips the scales way in the Team Flash's favor, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, it looks like, you know, Nash or any of the Wells' Tom Cavanaugh looked like he's done with the show at this point, or at least for now, anyway. Who who knows what the future could hold. But, I mean, Chester going into the chair, kind of taking over that Wells role, I think that's going to be interesting because Chester is very, very smart, very cool, very different personality and vibe than any of the Wells' though. So it should be a really interesting thing going forward. But, you know, I'm a I'm a Flash apologist. I love the show. I still love the show. I thought it was a solid premiere. I'm very curious to see how they wrap this Mirror Master story up and where they go for what would have been the Season 7 premiere, but will, will, but will be the remainder of Season 7 in this case. So definitely make sure you're checking out The Flash every Tuesday night on The CW. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Flash Season 7 premiere. Up next, we hit play on the new Hulu original movie, Boss Level with Frank Grillo and company. I'll give you my spoiler-free review of that. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Angelica Washington from DC Star Girl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Rise and shine and stay alive. It's time for my spoiler-free review of Hulu's new movie, Boss Level. And since the movie just dropped today, of course, podcasts come out on Friday. The movie came out on Friday. Don't want to spoil it for you. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler-free review of this thing. But before I even get into it, the cast of this movie is insane. I mean, if you just look at the cast, you've got Frank Grillo, who, of course, is playing the main character in this movie. But then you look at who else is a part of this cast. Mel Gibson, Naomi Watts, Michelle Yeoh. I mean, you could even go even further than that with Will Sasso, Ken Young, 
that's a part of this as well. There's a good cast to this movie. Frank Grillo's actual son, by the way, plays his son in this movie. I don't know if you know that, but Rio Grillo is actually playing his son in the movie, which is very, very cool, which is why those, those moments between them are so authentic in this movie, by the way. But anyway, we basically got Roy Pulver, who's played by Frank Grillo, who's playing a Delta Force guy or an ex-Delta Force guy, retired Special Forces. He's stuck in a time loop that always ends in his death. And you find we you do find out why he's in this time loop. And I know what you're thinking. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you're thinking, okay, James hates time loop stuff. So there's probably a good chance that he hated this movie. Why are we even talking about it? Okay, here's the deal. No, I don't like time loop stuff normally. But this movie is just so action-packed and so much fun for so many reasons, you almost forget about the whole time loop thing altogether. They get through a lot of the loops in the beginning, actually, and then the loops, the, the last few loops are much longer after that. So it's not like you're constant loop after constant loop, right? So it's very interesting the way it's structured. And when I was listening to the Q&A after the premiere, the, 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 the woman who was doing the interviews actually said that it was like Groundhog Day. And yes, it is like a demented action thrill ride version of Groundhog Day, the Bill Murray movie. It, it is kind of like that. And, and it's, it's got its humor elements. It's got its dark elements as well. But at the end of the day, that's, what, that's like the one-time loop movie that worked throw in some great catchphrases and and nonstop action. And that's one of the things that makes boss level work, quite frankly. And Frank Grillo is just amazing. You want to talk about somebody who should be that guy that you want for your action movie. He's that guy. You know, you you look at people like Mel Gibson in his heyday and look at, you know, Liam Neeson and Keanu Reeves to a certain extent right now right and and all the great action stars of the 80s and 90s yeah frank grillo right now is that guy he is the guy you want for that movie because first of all he pulls off some amazing action scenes in this there's a sword fight scene and i don't want to spoil anything okay there's a sword fight scene in this movie that's incredible it really really is and the guy's dodging assassins the entire movie so it's like you're always going to have something that he needs to get himself out of and fight himself out of. But he also uses his brain, too. Now, Roy's a bit rough around the edges, this character rough around the edges, and certainly there's some tropes attached to that character and to the movie as a whole. But then you get surprised by him, too, where he sort of starts to figure things out, right? He sort of starts to get smart. So he's also a student of what is going on with him, right? And then also there's a lot of heartfelt moments, too. So you think that this guy is just this testosterone-fueled, you know, gun-wielding, you know, typical stereotype, right? But then you see this connection that he has with his son, and I won't tell you much more beyond that. And you see that this is a guy that actually does have a heart. He does care. And there, there are some, you know, very interesting and emotional moments with him in this movie. So... You, I think you'll be surprised by that. But, of course, it's Frank Grillo, right? So you're still going to have a lot of fun and a lot of funny moments, too, by the way. And i got to give a tip of the cap to Joe Carnahan, who is the director, who, I mean, really did a great job at pacing this movie 
especially making the time loops themselves not seem too redundant. That's one of the things I hate about time loops in general when it comes to movies or TV shows is that the redundancy of them makes me check out pretty quickly. But but they did a great job with this in not making them seem redundant. Now, there were certain part, parts of it that were about how could you not when you're talking about time loops. And then you've got all these different assassins, right? When he kind of gives them each their own little spotlight. Not a huge spotlight, some more than others, of course. But everybody gets their own little spotlight. And everybody gets, has got their own reason to be hilarious and some of the things that happen a little little gruesome but still you know funny at the same time so there's there's certainly humor there it feels like a video game too boss level the title kind of lends itself to that there are some very video game feeling moments in this too And, and maybe part of that is the science involved in it but maybe part of that is just the way it was presented visually I think just made it feel a little bit like a video game. Like I would have expected this to be, if I knew nothing about it going in, I would have expected this to have been a video game adaptation. And I would wonder what the game was that this was based off of. And that's not the case here at all. Naomi Watts, always amazing. And and that really shines through in this movie. We, won't, we don't get to see a lot of her. We don't get to see a lot of Mel Gibson either. But Mel, Mel Gibson has one very specific part in this movie where he's got like a bit of a monologue. And it's really, really interesting. And this is a very interesting light to paint Mel Gibson in as well. Not a character that you typically see Mel Gibson play in Colonel Clive Venter. That's the character that he plays. So keep an eye on him throughout this movie. But it's just interesting to me how this is just an... You want to just have fun with an action movie. And that's just something we don't do very often, right? Don't dig for the deep meaning here. Yes, there are some deeper moments in this movie, but that's not what you're here to do, right? You're here to have fun, watch some great action, maybe see a couple things that you haven't seen before, enjoy the work of Frank Grillo, and just be done with it. Don't don't dig too deep here. Don't get too over-analytical. Sometimes you just need to stop and enjoy something for what it is. And I think that that's the key to enjoying boss level which you can watch right now on hulu that's going to do it for my spoiler free review of boss level from hulu up next the jam-packed show continues with some comics it's what we're reading i'm james Witham, and this is the down and nerdy podcast my name is uh, liam sharp i draw wonder woman i co-founded mayfire and i'm a dear and close friend of the down and nerdy podcast whether you're trying to stay out of the sun or just enjoying another Earth, whatever you're reading on, wherever you are, it's time for what we're reading. And going to dive back into Image Comics because I've been waiting for this one. It's Noctera number one from Scott Snyder writing this one. Tony S. Daniel on the art, Tomeo Mori on the colors, and N-World Design on the letters. Superstar creative team for this one. And I'm really not going to give you too many spoilers because I don't want to ruin this one for you. But the whole world went dark. That is one of the basis of Noctera. It just sort of happened. They call it the PM. So, and if you stay in it for too long, I'll tell you this much. You stay in it for too long, you start to mutate into like a vicious creature, right? So now everyone that survived lives in these well-lit outposts and things like that. And this story actually centers around Val and her brother, Emery. And they are the focus here. And Val really does have a tragic backstory, in this thing too, or that it seems to have a happy ending or at least a happy middle 
And then I guess the end is to be determined because of how things start for Val. Now, she's basically, what she does is she's a long-haul truck driver, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, basically, someone needs to get somewhere, or someone needs something to get somewhere, you pay her to carry it. And she's not the only one either, by the way. This is a very popular job in the PM. So, basically, she has this freight that not only promises her a big payday, but actually maybe something a lot more important than that. But as it turns out, she has one very good reason to get out of Dodge right now. She has a very good reason to leave, but she also might end up with somebody hot on her tail. So it's very, very interesting the way this world is depicted. I actually love what they did with the art, Tony S. Daniel and company, and how they created the creatures that we see. And I call them creatures for lack of a better term. I guess you could almost call them like zombie-esque, but not. It's really hard to describe, and that's a good thing, too, by the way. This is not something that's your typical style of monster or villain. So I think that this is a really, really neat way to go. And what this does to people and how it progresses is explained very, very well by Scott Snyder in the story here. So it's not like, a, oh, hey, this is what happens to people, and we're not going to tell you why. Not only do you get the why, you get, like, stages of how this happens and how you could actually cure it too. There's no like magical mystery cure, right? That they're searching out for. I mean, not, not, not in a traditional way anyway. So there are certain things that can be done or not be done. And, and I think that the fact that that's laid out right here in the story, it's a really, really cool thing. You really do get invested in the character of Val. At least I did very much in the early going, not just from her backstory, but just, you know, the way she carries herself, right? Like like a no-nonsense type of figurehead of a family, for lack of a better thing, because that's what she kind of is now by necessity with her brother, and she has to keep her brother safe for many, many reasons. So I think that this is one that I'm going to love for a long, long time. I think this is one that's in, in, in it for a long haul, and this is what happens when you get a superstar creative team like this, and you get to let them do their thing at a place like Image Comics. So what a wonderful way to kick off Noctera number one from Image. I loved Forever Evil from DC. Not going to apologize for it. One of the reasons for that was the Crime Syndicate. And that's why I'm jumping on Crime Syndicate number one this week. From DC and Andy Schmidt writing this one. Kieran McKeown on the pencils here. Dexter Vines on the, uh, on the inks. Steve Olaf on the colors, Rob Lee on the letters, and Jim Chung and Romulo Fajardo Jr. doing the cover for this. Now, this is the Earth 3 that spawned from the pages of Death Metal. I want to make sure I make that pretty clear. Not a whole lot of spoilers on this one either. There's also a backup story in this called Paranoid Titan and Brian Hitch and Alex Sinclair, the art team, on that one. So this is an alt-history story, for lack of a better way of putting it, because it is Earth 3. It's a different Earth, so it's a different type of history. And it is Earth 3, but Ultraman basically rules over Metropolis in this particular instance. And we do get to see some of the other crime syndicate characters in this as well. But here's the thing. Ultraman basically is flipping out over an article that was written about him, and all of a sudden, you snap your fingers, and there's an invasion. That much I can tell you. I won't tell you any more beyond that. You'll know who's invading, by the way. 
You'll see the you'll see the what the character is, and you'll go, I recognize that character, or I wonder if it is who it is, and yes, it is. So it's not clear why they're invading, but I mean, is it is it ever? It's not always clear, right? But they're all over the place, and they're in major cities across the world at this point. And yes, we do get to see Power Ring. We get to see Johnny Quick and Atomica, Superwoman, and Owlman as well. What's interesting here, though, is that as Ultraman's going to some very extreme measures, Owlman is wondering why Gotham is basically, and this is the biggest spoiler I'm going to give you, Gotham's untouched by this invasion. And that seems weird, right? Because in any other DC story, including Death Death Metal, Gotham is one of the central points for any invasion, right? It's a major city in the DC universe. And Owlman looks up and the skies are clear. And that's weird. And they're trying to figure out exactly why that is. There has to be a reason for it. So that's the big intriguing thing going in to what will be the next issue of Crime Syndicate from DC. Now, this group is evil, but everyone seems to be loved by the citizens, which I thought was very, very interesting. It's like, these guys are evil. They're tyrants, and you love them for it. So I thought that that was kind of a weird little thing that was a part of this story. But it's not as brutal as Forever Evil was, but there's also some subtle differences to the team, too. I got to say, I actually like some of these redesigns from the characters. Like I think that the redesign for the, 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 the one that was the most drastic out of all of them, right. was Johnny quick. That one was super, super drastic, but it was interesting the way that they redesigned that. The Superwoman suit was pretty cool. I think what they did with Owlman was subtle, but good. So I liked the redesigns overall. Didn't love the story as much as I thought I was going to. Actually, but I do think that they're doing a little bit of a different spin here. I actually liked the backup story for this a little bit more than the main story. So I thought Paranoid Titan was a really cool way to go. No, you know, I was only focused on Ultraman, not the whole crime syndicate, but the way it was framed out, I actually really dug it and I find myself kind of wanting more of that as well. So hopefully we do get that. So, you know, yeah, I'll give a first issue a shot. If you think you're if you're a crime syndicate fan, I think you'll enjoy it. And I'm, but I'm really curious to see how I feel going into the next issue, if I want to keep reading this one or not. But if you dig it, tell me why. Let me know. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, let's tackle some nerd news on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's a virtual world once again. It's time for nerd news. Before I get into the first story, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that came out this week that I'm not even going to I'm not even going to mention it by name but there was a there was a big rumor that came out this week in another story and I cannot use that in air quotes enough that were just based on wild just random accusations and and just random sources that got a lot of attention this week and I'm just not doing it until I get official word about this I'm just not doing it. It wouldn't be the first time we discussed a rumor on the show. You know, rumors can be fun to talk about, right? But it's, this is not, I, I, don't, I really don't know how else I can say this other than I've been doing this show for seven years and I've never just made something up just to get you to listen to this show. And I'm not going to do that. And I hope you realize that 
from me doing this long enough. If you've been listening to the show for the while, for a while, or if this is your first time listening to the show, that's not what I do. I'm not here to make stuff up. I might have fun saying, you know, wouldn't it be cool if this person played this part? Or, you know, I think that there's a possibility that this might happen, blah, blah, blah. But I'm never going to tell you that this is happening or that I have sources saying that this is happening. If I ever say that, it means I know that this is happening. Okay? I'm not the kind of person that's going to go run with something that I am almost certain is BS because somebody wants to get attention. And I could be wrong. Okay? I could absolutely be wrong. This could end up being true. But until... Somebody at an, in an official capacity confirms it, not doing it. So not going to talk about that. So if you're wondering why, and, and if you know, you know, I don't need to tell you because I'm not, I'm not going to give the any more attention to this than has already been given to it. So that's why I'm not bringing it up. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you, don't worry, you're safe. If you do, then I hope you understand why I'm not talking about it. But anyway, let's move on to stuff that's actually happening, that's actually been reported. And that is, first of all, at San Diego Comic-Con. Comic-Con International, going to go all virtual once again for the July show. But there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. Comic-Con International actually announced, if you want to read the statement, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. I got their full statement up there, or check it on their social media as well that they're going to try to do a smaller show in San Diego in November. It does not necessarily say it's at the convention center. It just says in San Diego in November. So bottom line here is we're not going to see Comic-Con at least until 2022. Okay, not, not a in-person version of San Diego Comic-Con anyway. So that much we know for sure. And they, they've, they're obviously going to roll the badges over, stuff like that, or offer refunds just like they did this past year. But here's the thing. And I am all for, I miss cons so much, by the way. There's friends that I don't get to see other than at conventions and things like that. And, and I just love being amongst the fans. I love being amongst the craziness of Comic-Con. Ever since I went for the first time, in 2017. I mean, it was just, it's always been such an amazing experience and I miss it so much. And I don't think that any virtual event, no matter how well it's done, can replace that feeling. I just want to put that out there right now. At the same time, San Diego Comic-Con and Comic-Con International in general has kind of built up this reputation, right, of the, of the big shows. Even WonderCon, they put on WonderCon as well. It has a big show feel. It's smaller than San Diego Comic-Con, obviously. But it has that big show feel. Trying to do something in San Diego in November, I understand why you want to do that, right? For a couple of reasons. One, you just want to give fans something to look forward to. You want to give fans that con feeling again. No question about it, I understand that. You also, you know, quite frankly, probably have to recoup the money that you're not making from your big conventions now that you've had to cancel twice, right? Because they can't be making a ton off of the virtual conventions. Even though they did a great job with the one in 2020, I, I can't imagine that they're making a ton of cash on these virtual shows, or at least nothing close to what they would be making for an in-person show. Trying to do something small in November, I also don't know how much money 
you're going to make then either. Because think about this. So far, as of me recording this, New York Comic Con is still scheduled for October. They have not announced anything about being virtual or anything like that. It could very well end up going that way. But think about it. October is a long time away. And it's only a month outside of what this November convention would be. To me, New York Comic Con, and this is just my opinion, New York Comic Con has the best chance of being the first larger scale convention to return. You can make an argument for Dragon Con, which I believe is in September, being a large convention as well. Okay, maybe I'll give you that one. So one of those two has the first has the chance to be the first big name convention to return, right? So do you really think that movie and TV and comic book publishers and and anybody in the Hollywood in the Hollywood industry is going to hold out announcements and panels for this event from Comic-Con International in November and not do it at New York Comic-Con. I'm, I just feel like the well is going to be dry by then. And maybe I'm wrong. And there's not a whole lot of shows that debut in November. You might get some movies. They're going to come out in November. Who knows? But again, who knows what movie theaters are going to be looking like in November as well. And a lot of releases that are being moved. And I, I wasn't going to talk about that either. But you had a couple. I mean, Fast and Furious 9 has already been moved again. You've got A Quiet Place 2 being delayed again and a bunch of other stuff. So who knows what's going to be happening in November. We don't know what things are going to look like still. And as frustrating as that is, that's just the nature of what's happening right now. We don't know. And I'm tired of talking about that too. But that's quite frankly, because of this pandemic the way it is, we don't know. So if New York Comic Con does happen as scheduled, as an in-person event, I can't imagine there's going to be a whole lot left for this November event for Comic-Con International. And, you know, maybe just putting on a convention is enough, right? But they still have that big name feel to their conventions, right? So if you come up with some, if you come up with a convention, but you don't have those big headline names and panels that you could put up and say, see, we've got this, you're asking people to travel, like they would for Sandy. Maybe maybe they're not asking that. I don't want to put the words in their mouth. Okay, so I take that back. But think about it. You have to have some sort of people traveling to your event to make this successful money-making endeavor, I would think, right? So if you want people to travel from around the country or even around the world, if that's even an option at that point, you're going to need to give them a reason to hop on an airplane or jump in their car. Right. Yeah, this is not supposed to be a localized con. And I'm not saying making it more about the comics would be a bad thing, because I actually do think that comic book publishers would have some, you know, some announcements to make at this convention. But at the same time, is that enough of a draw for somebody to get on an airplane in, say, Ohio or Florida or Maine or whatever? To go to this convention in San Diego, spend all that money for hotel and stuff like that to go to San Diego for this convention. I love the city of San Diego. It's beautiful weather. It's worst places to be in November, I can tell you that right now. But at the same time, that's a big investment for people that have had a rough, rough year and a half. I'm not sure that this is going to be 
as big of a deal as they need it to be financially. I think it's a nice lifeline to fans who just want something to look forward to, like I said. But if you're looking at the dollars and cents of this, I'm not sure the cost-benefit analysis is there for me. Not to get too businessy on you, but I, I don't see how this is a big profitability-making thing, but maybe that's not the point. But at the same time, I can't see Comic-Con International doing something that's not going to make them money, right? They have to make money. They can't just do something special for the fans out of the goodness of their heart. I'm, and that's part of what they're doing. I'm sure that there is very, that's very much part of it. But at the same time, they need to make some money. Otherwise, there's not going to be a San Diego Comic-Con because there won't be any money to put one on. And you have to you have to consider that at some point, regardless of what the state of the world is, when you can get back to these conventions again. So, And again, what, what's the capacity going to be by then, too? We don't know that either. Because the state of California has, has had the tightest restrictions pretty much of any state in the United States when it comes to COVID restrictions. So we have no idea what things are going to look like in November or or even a month from now, quite frankly. So this is definitely something to keep an eye on. And, you know, maybe there is room for two big conventions, one in October, one in November. We'll see exactly what the size of the three-day three event that is proposed from Comic-Con International is going to look like. A couple of trailers that we could talk about, a little bit of a snow, slow nerd news week, but we do have a trailer for Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which is going to be the first big project with Michael B. Jordan's Outlier Society and Amazon Studios. And I got to tell you, I'm looking at this trailer, by the way, going to be coming out on April the 30th. First of all, Taylor Sheridan is really putting out some good stuff. I just want to put that out there right now. But then you see Michael B. Jordan in this role as Senior Chief John Kelly. And this just has Tom Clancy written all over it. I mean, this really has that Clancy-type feel, and I love it. But this trailer is intense, because what happens to this dude? I mean, his pregnant wife gets murdered, right? He almost dies himself. But when he wakes up, and they even say this in the trailer, like, you better hope this dude doesn't wake up, because he's dangerous. He's got some serious... You want to talk about a particular set of skills? This guy makes Liam Neeson, in almost anything that Liam Neeson's done recently... Look like a look like a bush league assassin, because this guy, John Kelly, played by Michael B. Jordan, is man. He does some crazy that that part in the trailer, where he sets the car on fire, pours gas on it, sets the car on fire, and gets in the car with the guy that's in the car to tell him, hey, give me a name, because the kind of the car's kind of burning around us, and we're short on time. So you better give me a name, otherwise we're both gonna blow up. That's crazy stuff right there. That is next level stuff. And you don't even get into the fact that you've got Jody Turner-Smith in this thing. You've got Jamie Bell in this in this movie as well and a bunch of others. This is a good cast. It looks like this is going to be a really intense action movie with a lot of, you know, political and, and international intrigue. I mean, everything you would want from a Tom Clancy movie is going to be in this without remorse on April the 30th on Amazon Prime Video. I cannot wait for this thing. I think it's going to be amazing. Well, another big story from Tom King is about to hit DC Comics. It was announced this week that Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, 
It was going to be a maxi series, so going to get eight issues here. And it's not just Tom King that's involved in this as well. You've got Bilquis Evely, who amazing art. Matt Lopes doing the colors on this one. And to me, this is Supergirl's wheelhouse, as far as I'm concerned. You know the ongoing series that that's gone. You've got you know the Supergirl TV TV series that had a great run. That's going to be ending. But now you've got Supergirl cast in the upcoming Flash movie, and and you've got this. So it's actually going to been a pretty good year. For Supergirl so far. And these limited series, I think, are really the best Supergirl stories, right? Because you had Supergirl being super. And that was an amazing story. I think that was, what, two, three years ago. That was a really, really good story as well. Now we're going to get this one. I'm not going to read you the whole synopsis. You go to downandnerdypodcast.com for that. But this is basically, she's going to find her, she, she finds her life without meaning or purpose. And, you know, she's a young woman. She saw uh, this. This is from the synopsis. Star planet destroyed and was sent to Earth to protect, you know, Kal-El. And he ended up not needing her. So why did she end up going there in the first place? And this story is going to explore that. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, huh, never really thought about it that way. Like she was sent to this to the to, to Earth for a purpose that she was never really needed for. Now, should she have stayed well, that wouldn't have worked out too well. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so this is what I was needed for. And then it turns out I wasn't needed for it. Now what do I do? And this story is going to kind of explore that and see what what her next mission could be, right? And And she's actually been through a lot since she's been on Earth too, by the way. So we'll have to see where this story goes. But if you want somebody tackling somebody like this, I think it's Tom King. And then you've got Bill Quist Ever- Everly, whose art is fantastic and does not get talked about nearly enough as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you look at the cover, it looks really, really good, really interesting. There's going to be, I see Crypto. I'm hoping that Crypto is going to be involved. The Supergirl with a sword in her hand. What is that about? But I'm all about it. Let's yeah, bring this on, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. The only bummer is we're not going to be able to get this thing until June, but hopefully we'll have more continuing coverage as we get closer here. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Simon Mignanda for joining me this week to talk about Pennyworth. Make sure you're watching that thing on Sunday when it comes back on Epics. And once again, thank you for a an amazing. Seven years of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hopefully, they're going to be doing it seven more years and beyond. I love doing this show every week. I love getting a chance to get your feedback. Always send that to us, by the way, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, on Instagram. Hopefully, you're following us. Also, follow us on Facebook at Down and Nerdy. Find everything, everything that we've got going, out, going on at Down and Nerdy Podcast.com. And always remember this you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.